0: everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of sustainable futures designing green communities and buildings a living architecture monitor podcast from green roofs for healthy cities my name is stephen peck and i am your host today as well as the founder and president of green roofs for healthy cities we are the industry association for green roofs and walls across north america today i'm delighted to be in conversation with dr mike dixon Professor in the School of Environmental Sciences and Director of the Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility at the University of Guelph, Ontario. We're going to explore the subject of indoor farming, also known as controlled environment agriculture, and its key roles in food security and space exploration, where plants face extreme growing conditions. As a project leader for the Canadian research team, investigating the contributions of plants to life support in space, Dr. Dixon formed the Space and Advanced Life Support Agriculture, the SALSA program at the University of Guelph. The Controlled Environment Systems Research Facility is among the world's leading research venues for technology developments and research dedicated to studying plant and microbial interactions in advanced life support systems. The technical pull of space exploration has aided the development of a wide range of technologies that have spun off into applications, including terrestrial agri-food sectors, and most notably in the phytopharmaceutical or medicine from plants sector in recent years. Dr. Dixon, thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to our Sustainable Futures podcast.
1: My pleasure, Stephen. Nice to see you or hear you at least.
0: (laughs) Living architecture is about growing plants in, on and around building envelopes. And it can be challenging. I recall the movie, The Martian with Matt Damon had a really interesting component about the challenges he faced staying alive by growing potatoes uh, in space. So clearly figuring out the science of growing plants in extreme environments, it's not your average occupation. How did you first get into this field, uh, Dr. Dixon, and what drives you forward?
1: It's, it's a very long story, Stephen, and probably not one that's, uh, that we can get into in any detail here, but basically uh, stumbled into this by uh, you know, re- uh, responding to the Canadian Space Agency's inquiry across Canada back in the, at its early its foundation, you know, thirty odd, 30 or more years ago. Um, asking scientists across Canada, what do you do? And uh, do you think it can be useful for human space exploration? Uh, Just a blanket like that. So I got on their list of of, uh, scientists interested in space exploration and and was stumbled on by others looking uh, looking for expertise in that area. And then on it went, it just mushroomed from there. Um, Starting in the early nineties, we established our program in Mid nineties started building and designing the next generation of infrastructure devoted to answering questions about well, how do you take a plant into space, and you know what kind of pressure, what kind of atmosphere composition, uh, harsh environment agriculture are us in the end.
0: So it wasn't your love of James T. Kirk and uh, and Spock that uh, that got you started. It was. uh, just unravelling the secrets of growing plants in, in harsh environments?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, clearly I, I'm of an age that, that Star Trek was one of my, you know, through my gestation in this uh, this phase of my scientific uh, programs. Yeah, that was all kinds of fun. But um, as, as we developed our, a more sophisticated program in what's become called biological life support plants in space. As we've developed that program, it became increasingly more obvious that this is what we absolutely must do as humans if we're going to explore space and, you know, explore Mars, find life, or at least the remnants of some form of microbial life, which I'm absolutely confident we will find. Uh, but that kind of an exploration agenda takes years, decades, and to the prospect of spending extended periods with larger and larger crews on on the surface of Mars means that you absolutely must have some form of uh, bioregenerative life support, which is green plants.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we can live on a lot of technology, but we still need to uh, eat um, on a regular basis. So being able to grow food effectively in space uh, or on any, on any planet like Mars is obviously very challenging. There's lots of factors like uh, growing food successfully that are important, like light and pressure, nutrients, CO2 le- levels. Could you describe for us maybe your approach to this research? Share with us some of the primary primary challenges you and your team are trying to solve with your current work and unraveling yeah, you know- it?
1: When when we when we when the program evolved out of the mid '90s into the early 2000s, and we got lucky with a with a major multi-million-dollar infrastructure investment from the federal government and the provincial government, the Canada Foundation for Innovation, uh, that established the facility. And among the fundamental questions we were asking at that time is how low can you take the atmospheric pressure, and still have plants performing all the functions of human life support food which drives the equation by the way determines how far from earth we can go and how long we can stay so food oxygen recycling fresh water scrubbing co2 and making you feel good uh hort therapy is not to be lost in the equation but uh what that was that one question how low can you take the pressure was almost a deal breaker if we determined back in the early 2000s that you needed full Earth atmosphere, roughly 100 kilopascals, 21% oxygen, et cetera, uh, then we're, we're almost done before we start because the mass requirement of having a structure on, this, on the vac- in the vacuum of the moon or the almost vacuum of Mars, having a, an, a structure that could contain full Earth atmosphere uh, would be quite a massive system and mass and energy is the currency of space travel what the casual observer fails to appreciate is that you spend the money in the canadian economy and so i've been pushing space exploration as an economic engine for a country like canada for the last 30 odd years
0: there's a lot of uh, uh, pride I think still the, within the Canadian psyche around the Canada, Canada arm, the Canada arm that was part of the space shuttle program.
1: And, and something like life support, we come by that honestly. I mean harsh environment agriculture, good heavens. Look outside. It, there, there was some snow out there, but they, you know for, for more than half of the year, if you want to grow a plant for any purpose in Canada, you've got to do it in a controlled environment. And so we've we're we're past masters now at developing and adapting uh, okay the Dutch did it all and we just took their technology and adapted it to uh, the harsh Canadian environment and upped the technology uh, up the evolution of of technology to meet the harsh environment challenge that Canada presents.
0: So you've been at this since the 1990s what would you say are your most important discoveries or achievements thus far?
1: Well, we found out that you can grow plants at one tenth of Earth's atmospheric pressure as long as you maintain a, a minimum threshold of oxygen of about seven kilopascals, possible, partial pressure, so roughly 70% uh, of your 10 kilopascal um, total atmospheric pressure has to be oxygen, about one and a half water vapor, and about 0.1. CO2 and that's the recipe uh, that plants can handle uh, and still do their job and almost be indistinguishable from the same plants that you would grow in your backyard in the garden. So that, that was a very significant finding because that meant that uh, plants will not be the limiting uh, variable in the engineering specifications for the greenhouse or the, or the habitat on the moon or Mars. And what type of plants are we actually talking about here? Well, just think of a balanced, nutritional, psychologically appealing vegetarian diet, and all of the plants that you need to grow that. There's, we have a, a list today collectively in this research field around the world, so including NASA and the European Space Agency, the Russians, the Japanese, and the Chinese, um, and there are other groups that are coming in, uh, you know, adding. Flavor to it. The Australians are getting into it. Uh, the Israelis, of course. So uh, that list is is less than fifty plants, uh, edible plants, crops. And there was a time uh, I, I sit on a committee called the International Advanced Life Support Working Group. Uh, it hasn't met much recently. Uh, nobody's met much recently. So, uh, but we we have this list of crops and. Uh, we assigned them to various institutions around. In my case, uh, we had uh, soybeans, beets. Um, we did some work on wheat and uh, uh, durum wheat for, for pasta. That was an interesting one. We grew the wheat and developed a horticultural management practice for growing durum wheat in a controlled environment. We would harvest it and then ship the, uh, the harvested commodity to Naples, where the university in Naples would do, would make the pasta. That was their their part of the chore. So it, it's a very long-term international collaboration among many groups. Uh, we work with the European Space Agency, their Melissa project, which is ESA's uh, life support program. We've been a partner with them since 97. We have collaboration agreements with NASA since 99. I did a sabbatical there, my colleague Tom Graham spent three years there on a research fellowship with NASA and then their personnel have come our way. So it's a, it's a relatively small community internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could fit them all in my scotch bar, but uh, it's it's basically uh, the list of assignments is huge and uh, the, the homework that has to be done to routinely grow and, and sustain uh, a crew investigating life on Mars, for example, uh, is is a, is a long ways off, but it's it's one that we just have to make incremental advancements starting yesterday.
0: Yeah. So let me uh, see if I understand what you're saying. So there's about fifty plants on this list that you yep. figure you really need to grow in order to sustain a vegetarian diet uh, off planet, and you you're sharing the work of testing the ability to grow those plants in a one-tenth atmospheric environment? Well,
1: the, the one-tenth atmosphere is the limit. Uh,
0: it, it, it's
1: it, Most recently discussed the atmospheric pressure on the lunar habitat that's proposed, for example, is uh, is about half of Earth's atmosphere. So uh, so it's a good thing that plants can handle down to a tenth. Um, unfortunately, we can't. <laughs> so if you're going to be a farmer, then you need a, uh, you know, you need to be a slightly more comfortable atmosphere environment, and it will likely be somewhere around half of Earth's atmosphere, roughly fifty-five kilopascals, um, or eight psi if you're American, and um, and that that allows you to have an enriched oxygen because seven psi, seven uh, kilopascals of oxygen isn't enough for us. We need, you know, we kind of like twenty-one. Um, we got kind of used to it, so. Uh, it's likely that there will be an enriched oxygen environment in half of Earth's atmospheric pressure. And that allows you to take advantage of that reduced pressure and reduce the mass of your containment system uh,
0: commensurately. So that work that that through those in those conditions, those harsh conditions is being those plants are being studied by a whole variety of different research institutes around the world, as I think is what you're what you're, saying, that, what you're
1: saying that's right we right. we at, at Guelph we are uniquely capable at looking at the reduced
0: atmospheric pressure
1: on the scale that we do um, that that's you know basically we've done that that that's uh, my that's under the under the bridge if you will that water so we know now you know you don't have to keep beating the hypobaria story to death we've we've got uh, as far as we need to go there there will be other aspects of that As you start to integrate other technologies into the reduced atmospheric pressure, you have to test drive it before you go. And uh, for plant production, though, we have a a relatively unique infrastructure in our facility that, uh, that has taken that story quite a ways in the last 20 years.
0: Uh, That's great. So stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back with uh, Dr. Mike Dixon and understanding how uh, he's been figuring out with his team and teams around the world uh, how to grow the vegetables that sustain us as we slowly and gradually move out into space.
2: The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. For over 15 years, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities has provided professional development opportunities to over 15,000 green infrastructure industry professionals from around the world. Learn all about integrated water management with our Net Zero Water for Buildings and Sites course, or begin earning your Green Roof Professional accreditation, all from the comfort of your home. All courses on the Living Architecture Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP continuing education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com and start your professional development today.
0: Welcome back. Today we're talking with Dr. Mike Dixon, who has spent the better part of 30 years investigating how we can grow plants in extremely harsh environments. Something that I'm told is very fundamental to our ability not only to grow plants in harsh environments on Earth, but also being able to grow food in space and support space travel. Uh, Dr. Dixon, can you tell me why food is so essential, growing food is so essential to uh, space travel? Can't we just put a package it all into some nice little pills and pop a pill every day? What, why do we need to grow food?
1: Well, the, the limits there, Steve, is is the mass. If you consider sending a crew of six or eight to Mars, for example, the sheer tonnage of food that they would require. Now, Let's be let's be realistic here. In the early stages, the first trip or two to Mars, we'll send uh, robotic missions out that that dump some groceries on the surface and and uh, you know sort of ass covering, if you will, in terms of uh, the life support requirements. But as the missions get longer and more complicated, and larger groups of people start to assemble on Mars, looking for life and just invest just exploring in general, um, the The mass cost, remember that mass and energy is is what we're trying to limit here. Uh, The mass cost of continuing to supply them, and Mars is six or seven months away with current propulsion technology, almost a a three-year round trip. So uh, the mass cost of supplying uh, fruit and vegetables and and edible biomass, as NASA calls food, uh, becomes prohibitive. Uh, you, you must start to uh, incrementally fill the gap with locally supplied resources, locally supplied CO2 and water, and uh, and build a food production system. We even have to start doing that on the Moon, even though the Moon is, uh, you know, as little as three days away if you really want to get there in a hurry. Um, and, and so, resupplying the Moon or or emergency supplying the Moon is not outside the realms of possibility, but even that, uh, you know, we should at least test drive all the technologies. Break it all on the moon first before you have to go to Mars and really, really have to rely on long-term food production technology.
0: So is that largely because it's so? It costs so much energy to free ourselves from the gravitational pull of the Earth. Is that exactly? Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. It, you know, just just getting. Uh, I mean. The numbers vary over the years, but it's, it's tens of thousands of US dollars per kilo to take stuff off planet Earth and put it up there somewhere, even to the space station or beyond. Mm-hmm. So to, to send something to Mars, to send a kilo of uh, you know, anything, uh, peanut butter or flour, uh, to Mars is, is a massively expensive enterprise. So we better start growing wheat on mars and and developing the technology to uh to everything thresh it grind it make flour make uh, and and then bake bread Uh, now in the early days we'll trade that in the early days we'll say well gee let's just take a bag of flour Um, but eventually you have to be able to do it on site with in situ resources uh, the atmosphere of Mars is is almost entirely carbon dioxide, even though there's not a lot of it. Um, and there's there's lots of water on Mars apparently, but I you know I have a whole lot of questions up front. I have to dissolve that water in something and analyze it and say is there anything nasty in the water on Mars? Um, can I use it uh, if I have to truck water to Mars? The exploration of Mars is going to take uh, the next century or two, <laughs> but if I can use the water on Mars as part of my life support agenda uh, for both myself and the biological life support system, the plant, you know, the, the, the agriculture, then uh, we're almost ready to go now.
0: So it's it's so what you're basically trying to do is figure out if you can shift the mass requirements of feeding people through plants from earth to either the moon or mars how much can you source from those planets so you don't have to expend the energy to lift all that all those inputs off the earth exactly Hmm. all
1: you know to go to the moon you just need a bag of seeds and some water uh, and the appropriate substrate and the appropriate environment control we're proposing right now as we speak we're working with the canadian space agency to design uh the 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 sort of specifications and the criteria for a production system that will defeat the harsh environment of the moon. It's really hot in the sun and really cold in the shade. So we need an environment control system that will sustain plant production growing conditions and human life support conditions uh, through those extremes of environmental challenge that the the lunar surface, the Moon is actually gonna be harder than Mars because mm-hmm. it, it you know, it has a 14-day a day and a 14-day night, whereas, and, and really, really extreme climate uh, in that vacuum. Mars is almost like Earth, and in fact, there was a time a few billion years ago when it was almost exactly like Earth. That's why I'm so confident that we'll find life in the bottom of a frozen lake on Mars somehow, and if not, living and kicking and breathing today, uh, at least fossils of some microbial community. Uh, Mm -hmm. So those situated, Mars is gonna be relatively straightforward, except it's so darn far away. And so supplying it uh, is is a prohibitive challenge, the mass and energy cost of supplying uh, food, And, and food determines how far from Earth we can go and how long we
0: can stay. So, um, you know, we've seen a number of new developments here on earth with respect to agriculture, particularly in the last 20, 30 years, particularly in also in the field of controlled environment agriculture. Some big players are starting to get into the, you know, the, the field of growing food inside uh, buildings, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, has your, your research contributed to the growth of this, the controlled environment agriculture sector? And if so, how? Very so? much
1: so. Very much so. We're we're joined at the hip with those, uh, especially the technology development companies, the LED lighting, um, the, the HVAC, the, the atmosphere management. Transferring the technology of, of producing food in the harsh environment of the, uh, you know, using space exploration as the technical pull, as you called it, um, t- to develop these technologies, uh, puts us in a position to be able to transfer those technologies for. Harsh environment agriculture to Canada's north, where food security is a profound issue. It's a profound economic issue. We've also been working in the Middle East, where food security is an equally profound issue, but it's not so much economic. Uh, they literally have money to burn, <laughs> uh, but it is a you know a, a social and a political issue. Um, so having having food security in your society is a is becoming a significantly more important social and political issue, uh, and now with this infernal climate change, you know, where California is either burning or, or flooding, and and the you know the, the bread of North America are under such severe weather constraints that the prospect of controlled environment agriculture, although replacing, you know, the, the entirety. Of uh, food production in, uh, in, in field food production is virtually impossible in our short lifetime. But uh, at some point, I guess we have to consider lots and lots of different kinds of commodities coming out of uh, very high fidelity controlled environments so that the food security and the food safety are both addressed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people, you know, when you talk about or read the literature on climate change resiliency, and resiliency planning, very rarely do you have anybody referring to food or food supply or food security. You know, it's a lot of it's yeah. about storm, uh, rainfall and drought and, um, you know, uh, heat. But no one seems to connect the dots, or maybe it, it, the stuff I'm reading, there hasn't been a lot of connecting the dots to our food systems. And the impact of climate change on food systems, and how we can buffer against future scarcity. I suppose.
1: Yeah, and 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 we're obviously going to have to uh, get much more serious in connecting those dots because um, food security. Uh, you know, we just just going through the last year and a half or so with the with the disruptions in food supply and uh that the ukraine ukrainian war is causing um and you know their their grain supply is a significant proportion of the grain supply that the the world uh, is expecting and when it gets disrupted uh, the implications of that on you know starvation in some parts of uh, of the world is very significant so not that we're gonna start growing wheat in a box and northern canada but uh some variation of growing at least you know start incrementally advancing the technology at the scale of the technology to contribute to uh, food production and it's we got to get out of lettuce (laughs) Uh, lettuce seems well you know virtually every high density controlled environment agriculture system in these vertical farms are, are growing salad greens well salads don't save the world and uh in, in 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 my you know as far as i'm concerned lettuce is not food until you put the ranch dressing on it so we have to start producing more complex carbohydrates and proteins uh as as food so in the, in our research program we're investigating a broader range of commodities that address that specific uh, requirement to add a little more variety. And and if you go to space, you know, the 40 or 50 plant commodities that we have is is everything, just every uh, plant that you can think of that's part of a nutritional, well-balanced vegetarian diet, you know, wheat, beans, peas, corn, uh, beets, soybeans, uh, it, it, you know, the list is, is just exactly what you, there, there's nothing, remarkable about it is exactly what you would think it would be and uh, developing the arithmetic to say, okay, I've got a crew of six and here's their menu cycle for the next say 10 day menu cycle. And here are the menus for the breakfast dinner and and supper. Uh, And I need this mass of that specific commodity on each of these days for each, you know, for this crew. So we can do the arithmetic to figure out how much plant material with obvious margins of error uh, do I need to support this crew. And then you can also do the arithmetic to figure it out. Okay, how much CO2 do they scrub? How much oxygen do they deliver? How much fresh water do they recirculate? And it turns out that if you grow enough food for you and me, each of us, and we each need about 50 square meters, that is getting less and less with more research. Started out at 73 in our program. So that's it's a 50 square
0: meter. that's 50 square meters of surface area too of, yes right? of
1: plant production areas
0: yeah. so it could be vertical could be could be stacked exactly.
1: yeah. yeah yeah just the, just the area of growing plants and that that amount of plant material gives you and I twice as much oxygen as we need twice as much co2 scrubbing as, as we require and twice as much fresh water recycling. So that's why food drives the equation. That's why all the work in in the life support research agenda is trying to drive the mass and energy cost of the food production system down.
0: You know, I think that the reason why, um, at least it seems the early controlled environmental, uh, environment agriculture facilities are growing a lot of leafy greens has a lot more to do with the fact that they're, um, they're in demand all the time. they don't travel well so they, they do well in, in local markets and there's a price right. premium there's a price premium for them. So it's more about the locational factors and economic benefits probably than uh, like a survival scenario like you're painting.
1: Yeah, that, that, uh, that marketplace though it, you know it's, it sort of operates now on, on a niche market and a local area are you right the, the distribution system, uh, if you localize that, it reduces the so-called carbon footprint of, of distribution of that. But it, it isn't a, a very significant contribution to our nutritional requirements. And ultimately, that's what we're, de- we're definitely going to need um, as, as the sort of, uh, you know, the upheavals of conventional agricultures get more severe with climate change or fires or floods, whatever. Um, th- then we will need alternatives to fill that gap, and there there is clearly a market opportunity there. Uh, the technology exists uh, and is getting more sophisticated on an almost daily basis. Uh, the scale is increasing, um, you know, be, almost beyond belief in some cases, where you've got acres and acres under in a, in a warehouse, uh, stacked up twenty levels high. It's, it's quite incredible, um, and and. The biggest gap, the biggest sort of bottleneck in that whole industry sector as it's evolving is the availability of highly qualified personnel, people who know where the on switch is for all this quite sophisticated agricultural technology.
0: Yes, the human resource component. Yeah, very interesting. Stay with us, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as we return with uh, Dr. Mike Dixon talking about uh, technology evolution and diffusion and food security in the face of uh, ongoing extreme challenges brought to us uh, courtesy of climate change. We'll be right back the living architecture monitor is a fully digital quarterly publication by green roofs for healthy cities featuring explorations of innovative trends thought-provoking interviews with industry leaders and information about the latest developments in green roofs and wall policy throughout north america and the world the living architecture monitor also hosts the journal of living architecture a peer-reviewed scientific journal published by the green infrastructure foundation helping to platform the latest cutting-edge green roof and wall research With more than 10,000 readers per issue, companies interested in reaching green roof and wall decision makers like green roof professionals, architects, landscape architects, engineers, and policymakers can take advantage of competitive advertising rates with discounts for reoccurring ads. The Living Architecture Monitor is the green roof and wall industry's premier publication, so read this issue today at livingarchitecturemonitor.com. Welcome back to the Sustainable Futures podcast. With me today is Dr. Mike Dixon and we're talking about food security, controlled environment agriculture, space exploration, um and and, and Mike was just mentioning, you know, that one of the challenges or the bottlenecks of actually growing more food in inside buildings is the human resource uh, constraints not having enough qualified people. Could you speak a little bit to the job opportunity component of uh, of growing food through these uh, through these technologies?
1: The the opportunities uh, for young people these days and this and it's historically you know it's, it's not always been the most attractive field agriculture um, and and in fact I recall a time when Guelph was referred to as a moo you and uh, the prospect, but now with the the very sophisticated technology and the requirements to know where the on switch is for an all for all this stuff, and be able to sustain and maintain it uh, reliably, so that your food production system uh, does what it's meant to do on in in a in a reliable fashion, that's not a trivial undertaking. And uh, I'm I'm continually bombarded by people in that controlled environment sector, the industry, uh, and we have industry partners as well who feed on our, the leading edge of our technology development as well as our personnel. Uh, but I'm continually asked from people with vertical farming applications and in greenhouse applications and the, the up and coming uh, phytopharmaceutical sector with cannabis and, and other medicinal crops growing in, in harsh in controlled environments So uh, their biggest demand is not for technology, not for genetics, not for anything like that. It's for somebody who knows how to run it. Somebody who knows how to be the high-tech farmer uh, of the future in, in the controlled environment sector.
0: Lots of opportunities there, and certainly uh, going to be a much bigger need as we move into the future. Um, you mentioned food as medicine, this phytopharmaceutical uh, concept. I mean, obviously, food is fundamental to our health and well being, but you're, I, it sounds to me like you're taking it another step further. Could you describe to us a little bit more what you mean by that term phytopharmaceuticals?
1: Yeah, the, in, in a controlled environment, there are essentially three classes of commodities that you can grow in a commercial operation. Food, ornamentals, and medicine. Uh, Food, unfortunately, has the lowest possible margin. If you're looking at it purely from uh, the the commercialization opportunity basis, uh, food uh, doesn't have a whole lot of a margin on it. Uh, In fact, you can make two and a half to three times more growing uh, ornamentals, Uh, however, you can get two or three hundred times more in the same or growing area uh, if you're growing medicine for example cannabis which is the new kid on the block in terms of uh, legal product production uh, in canada so we've been doing a lot of work with cannabis for the last decade i guess uh, in collaboration with that industry sector uh, they, they support leveraged con- research contracts that leverage uh, federal provincial contributions to support uh, and and then the, we develop uh, the personnel who know what not to do. That's probably the most important thing we pass on in, in tech transfer is what not to do. And I, I had one PhD student who uh, was literally offered a job as he stepped off the podium uh, from giving his uh, PhD dissertation defense.
0: Hmm that's quite remarkable. Um, You know, some people uh, in the agricultural sector are critical of these high tech uh, approaches, you know, that often, you know, don't involve organic material of any kind, or Mm. that are using, um, you know, chemistry based nutrient supply, and and they they claim that, uh, you know, it's they look the food looks good, maybe, but there is no it's lacking in some way. Have you, has, he, has any of your research touched touched on that? I mean, are astronauts going to die because they're missing some fab, some special sauce that comes from living soil? Um,
1: Actually, you, you hit a, a, you know, relatively sensitive point. You're absolutely right. Uh, that the, the environment control, if, you know, you can bring the genetics of, of whatever plant you're interested in, whatever food crop or, 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 uh, ornamental or, or specifically medicine. This is what's really driving the answers to this question or, or the need for the answers. And, uh, the, the controlled environment agriculture then determines the, whether you can exploit those genetics adequately or not. And the you know we did some really pretty uh, neat little experiments looking at the color of light, the spectral quality, and it turns out that that is an extremely profoundly powerful environment variable. It, just by changing the color of the light, you can change the size, shape, color of the plant. Its its expression of anthocyanins, antioxidants. You know the red streak in the lettuce, for example. Is a result of uh, blue light. And uh, if you have more and more blue light, then you get more and more of this red anthocyanin expression. So, uh, that, and different, different uh, spectral qualities of light result in, as I say, different sizes, shapes, and colors. And also, taste. You can taste the difference. If you grow it in, in uh, white light, or blue light, or red light, uh, and then take a taste, they, in fact, the Nature of Things did a little piece with us some time ago uh, where they confirmed that indeed the, the lettuce growing in this, uh, at this color of light is different from the lettuce growing in that color of light. So you think about it, the, the color and the taste are secondary metabolites. They're, they're, they're um, you know they, the products of the metabolism inside the plant, the chemistry that happens after the plant sucks in the CO2 and does photosynthesis and then distributes that energy uh, to other processes, so-called secondary metabolism. And that's what produces the color and the taste. It's also what produces the medicinal compounds. So I can play with the color of the light and modify the profile of nutritional compounds as well as medicinal compounds. So the THC and the CBD in in my uh, cannabis is a product of the secondary metabolic processes and I can play a tune with them by maintaining a specific environment uh, recipe and and that is probably what and, and we're only just starting to do this that is how uh, the plant-made medicine will evolve from being um, what it is today which is not all that reliable in many respects to being very similar to a standard pharmaceutical commodity, always the same. You know, the pill has the same concentration of it, of the profile of medicinal compounds that you create. Well, we can we can aim at doing that with a plant, and it's environment control, high
0: fidelity environment control that gives you the power to do that. So, you're are you saying that it's the light and the spectrum of light that's more of a determinant? Of those um, performance characteristics of plants, then the quality of the nutrients, or where the nutrients come from, or whether they're, you know, being extracted from a living soil with you know millions and it's, billions. It's billion all of the above.
1: Stephen. Yeah, it's all of the above. You you cannot separate. There, there's six or seven prime environment variables that temperature and humidity, which you can't separate nutrients and water which you can't separate and light and co2 and it turns out as if you start messing around with the quality of the light you change the way the plant feeds on the nutrients so that that whole metabolic process that's um, being serviced by the nutrients that are pulled up by the roots and the the uh, photosynthetic compounds that are produced in the green factory the leaves the interactions there so you can't separate out different environment variables. I'm, we're using the color of light as a, as a tool, but not in, in the absence of integrating the rest of the concert of environment variables that is being played uh, because the plants are the product of their environment within the
0: confines of their genetic complement. Right. So if you take that, the nature of that feedback loop uh, up into space it begs the question, how do you replace the nutrients that are inevitably depleted from the plants, regardless of what the temperature, humidity, or, you know, hmm. the, the, the spectrum of light, you're, you're going to deplete the nutrient base, so whatever it might be, whether it's organic, you, it's organic. You
1: recycle everything. When you go to space, there's no such thing as garbage. You cannot throw anything away. Now, we're really terrible at that here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the research that we do in our facility is, how do you recycle everything? We're focusing mostly on the water and nutrients and the sensor technology required to sustain a recycling of the nutrients. We still can't do that very reliably in, in our greenhouses or anywhere. It's, a, it's not a trivial technical challenge but we have to be able to recycle all the carbon, oxygen, water, nitrogen, et cetera, because you can't throw anything away when you go to space. And, and you, you've you just hit on essentially the, the basis for my entire research program going forward is um, solving all, many or as many of these issues as we possibly can, uh, how to recycle everything, how to create the environment control recipe that yields the nutritional, psychologically appealing vegetarian diet on the surface of Mars—we're uh, we're not going to develop that on Mars. We're going to develop it here uh, at the University of Guelph and ship it to Mars eventually.
0: Right. You really have to—you have to create a, a system, you know, that uh, that uh, continually regenerates itself.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's how the Earth works. But we have the capacitance of this whole planet to help us out here. When you go to Mars, you're going to be in a box. And they, the capacitance of the system, and that, that's really the challenge, is the time constant for the recycling of each of these individual elements and compounds. Uh, they're so vastly different. They vary, in, in some cases, by two orders of magnitude. That's, ha- that's handled on Earth here by the sheer volume of, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. So it's the sheer volume of our ecosystem that uh, that that sustains us. We won't have that on the moon and Mars. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to figure out an awful, an awful lot. I've got a homework assignment list that will take me through the rest of my professional career and beyond.
0: That's really... Uh... That's really fascinating. And, you know, it makes me think about another aspect uh, of this that um, that we've been talking a lot about uh, in our industry, which is the whole um, biophilic hypothesis and the need for uh, the psychological and physical need for people to be in natural areas at a minimum Mm. of two hours a week uh, to maintain their well-being. And it seems to me that, you know, the design of a of a of a facility that's going to produce food and you know metabolize CO two and produce oxygen is also going to perform some sort of a psychological function Absolutely. for astronauts as well. With without question, uh, the the so called hort
1: therapy aspect of this is definitely not lost on us. We don't have the. I actually did have a couple of students back in the day that that were. Approaching that, and in collaboration with the psych department, et cetera, it never evolved into much because it was hard to get funding support. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. uh, to approach that rather nebulous, hard to quantify context of, uh, of plant environment and human interactions, um, we, you know, so we were stuck mostly in the highly technical area of plant environment interaction and solving the issues. And the, the, the technology requirements to yield a successful outcome there. but you're absolutely right. We got to figure out uh, what's what not to do when uh, when we start to develop more psychological profiles of personnel as we ship them off to Mars for a decade.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question because you know, if you get into the space age, you know, twenty six layers, separated by you know 10 centimeters with different colors of lights yep. and so forth it, it, that type of a uh, environment although productive and possibly sustainable may not give anybody the psychological support they need uh i,
1: I guarantee you everybody will have a little plant
0: in there on their test
2: yeah that's <laughs> not going
0: to cut it uh i'm afraid no. dr dixon but uh, <laughs> It, it's uh, nice to think about any future thoughts, thoughts about your, your future in terms of your research, you, you've expressed the, uh, some of those already. I'm just wondering if you've had anything else you want to uh, share with us.
1: Well, in, in the space exploration agenda, my bucket list is to grow barley on the moon. And barley is, it, you know, it took me a long time to get barley accepted by the International Life, Advanced Life Support Working Group when I first suggested it back in the mid 90s. Uh, It was shot down by the chairman of the committee, Frank Salisbury, uh, who I didn't understand or appreciate this at the time, but Frank was, uh, he's passed away since, but Frank was a teetotal Mormon from Utah. And I was supporting my argument for barley because it is the foundation of single malt whiskey. And I had just been appointed one of the conveners of the Malt Whiskey Tasting Society of Canada. So that was... And, and using that rationale for that food crop, basically, uh, he, Frank didn't even laugh. And, uh, but Frank since retired, and Ray Wheeler, who is the uh, head of the life sciences group at Kennedy Space Center, is the new chairman of that committee. And f- Ray and I are in collusion, and Barley is now officially on the candidate crop list for human space exploration. So when they make that first dram on Mars, that's
0: mm-hmm. how it got there. Well, hopefully they'll name that barley after you, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that scotch after you rather, uh, if they do ever get, pull enough together to uh, distill it, uh, that, would be, that, would be fan- but, that would be fantastic. But bearing in, <laughs>
1: mind, bearing in mind, Stephen, that that's, that's a very long winded and, and highly technical enterprise. In the meantime, developing the technologies to recycle water, to grow anything, in a, in a really harsh environment like Northern Canada or the deserts of the Middle East, that is the real spin off and technology transfer that, that emanates from our program. That, that's, that's really what sustains it. We don't often get a mission to go to the moon or Mars, so no mission, no money. Uh, our multi million dollar research agenda is, is supported by industry partners uh, who leverage uh, federal and provincial funding. To develop the, uh, the, the the research technologies, the research agenda, the training opportunities for uh, for graduate students, and the commercialization opportunities in terrestrial agrofood—that mm-hmm. uh, that's the real agenda here.
0: Yeah, there's a real challenge in the north too. Uh, my understanding oh. is sometimes it costs like t- twenty dollars for a head of lettuce or. Like just to, yeah. to, the cost of transporting fresh food to further far the far north is uh, really causing a lot of um, economic and social and health strain on those communities. So why not grow it if you can? Um, you know, on site. Um, that sounds like a wow. huge, that would be a huge plus. I think for the well. Yeah, and the and we did
1: we did a feasibility assessment of that particular challenge some years ago. In collaboration with allied, in in collaboration with now Honeywell, um, but uh, Comdev International and and uh, as the aerospace sector, and also uh, the government of Northwest Territories, uh, the Arctic Energy Alliance, and Aurora Research Institute, and on their website is a is a uh, our final report, which was uh, outlining Ag North. I think if you just Google Ag North, you'd find the aurora research institute's uh, report of our feasibility study and it, i was totally surprised quite frankly pleasantly surprised to discover that it can be economically feasible even with the cost of energy uh and and the technology uh, challenge of a snowbank and yellow knife that you can make a buck growing food in a harsh environment in canada's north not any food but you know specific high-priced commodities uh, red peppers strawberries etc and uh, not using think,
0: diesel surely not using diesel no, though, absolutely
1: know. not no what, and my ge- argument
0: geothermal, geothermal or, uh, well, it's or just rude. about
1: anything but diesel
0: <laughs> my yeah, argument yeah. has
1: been that you know we have we have as taxpayers in the south here we have subsidized our cousins in the north uh, to the extent of many, many millions uh, over the years for what used to be called food mail and is now called Nutrition North. So the program of servicing the food, the, the perishable food requirements for our cousins in the North has, uh, we, we have imported food mostly from Mexico. And uh, I, I'm suggesting that we divert some of that subsidy to an energy subsidy or a subculture of controlled environment agriculture in the North, uh, you know, give us 10 or 15 years of subsidizing, subsidizing that activity and build up the infrastructure and the expertise, the so-called HQPs, the highly qualified personnel that, uh, that know how to run a controlled environment agriculture system. And you will have an industry, an agricultural industry in the North that incrementally, as it advances, uh removes the requirement for um, for shipping it in from mexico
0: that sounds like uh, a really potentially positive adaptive adaptive strategy for northern communities which increasingly are having trouble getting their sustenance from the land due to a whole bunch of factors like ice melting prematurely and and so on and so forth so uh, let's hope that um you know there's they take you seriously and there's some way to to move that those ideas forward might they sound really great
1: yeah and both the federal and provincial governments uh uh, are are you know keenly keen to support these kinds of adventures and i've been involved in a new number of projects in general it's been my experience that as soon as the government money runs out the the project sort of fizzles and dies um so it it needs a combination of of uh, commercializable technology and uh And and entrepreneurial activity that can exploit the the commercial opportunity appropriately uh, and support it. And, and, you know, you can't go in there and just sort of instantly solve the problem. You have to to sort of take baby steps and incrementally advance the technology and take advantage of technology transfer from guys like me and our program and personnel that,
0: that we produce because we know how to do it. And work directly with communities that are keen to to adopt. Absolutely. Technology. Yeah, Yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity. Well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate your time, Dr. Dixon, and your research is obviously contributing to our sustainability in a variety of ways. And uh, I just hope that uh, as we move forward, uh, we'll uh, we'll, um, solve more of the riddles of uh, figuring out how to, to uh, go out and uh, create communities in space, and more importantly, make sure we take care of the communities here on Earth—the ones that will, with with you. That will likely yep. be our homes for a long time to come.
1: Absolutely.
0: We'll catch up with you uh, in uh, in a in a few weeks, and maybe we can pop by. I'd love to come by and see what you're up to in Guelph and kick the tires. Standing A
1: standing invitation. We. We're part of the Deep Space Food Challenge that the Canadian Space Agency is, has uh, put together and we're in preparing to defend our, uh, our prototype and hopefully advance to stage two, phase two of this challenge, developing technology to do just what we've been talking about. And um, that, there's a big media day. I think they're coming to judge our program next Thursday and there's a big media day on Wednesday and Thursday. So there, you'll see this stuff in the press um, for the next couple of weeks,
0: probably. Um, that's really that's really great, and uh, I think it's also great that you are thinking about and promoting and communicating applications of your technology for the needs here of people on Earth. Um, you know, not just uh, you know the start the Trekkies in us all. You know,
1: <laughs> well, that's the sex appeal. the the real The reality is. The tech transfer and the commercialization opportunities for industry partners is really what drives the
0: program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Well, thanks again. And um, I think that will conclude our uh, our broadcast. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Mike Dixon for your dedication to this work and uh, for your time in explaining the many challenges that you've been uh, working on and for thinking about how these, uh, how to uh, apply these uh, amazing technologies to the needs uh, of us on Earth and to try to keep us sustainable as possible in the face of climate change. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Stephen, for the opportunity and uh, I hope we get a chance
0: to talk about it again. That's great. Thank you.